All right, we'll be reading Ephesians 1, 13 through 23. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the very word of God. Crystal just asked me if I was ready to preach, and I said no. <laughs> it was a little late. Um, I'm going to start this morning by praying part of this passage over our church, and then we're going to dive into the word here. Father, may you give the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ. May the eyes of our hearts be enlightened that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us. What are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints? Amen. So, um, every year we take three weeks in August at Crosstown Church, and we uh, do a series called Crosstown Basics. And... Uh, it's a time for us to focus on what we believe are the essentials to seeing the mission of our church um, take place. Um, you can read it on the wall. It's on our website. Some of us have it memorized. Making disciples of Jesus by exposing people to credible gospel community. We want to see that lived out. And so every year we turn our focus back to that and say for the next year, this is what we're going to be about. And then we'll step off into a new sermon series that helps us accomplish that. So in a couple of weeks, we're going to start a series in Romans, and we're going to preach through Romans for a year. Um, because we believe that that is where God is directing our church and helping us to live out this mission. Um, so here we are in week two. Ben just mentioned this. Um, we, we preach gospel, community, and mission. These are the foundations of what we're called to. And that's what I want to talk about this morning is um, what we are called to um, is this glorious inheritance in the saints. And so um, as I prayed about this, I, I chose Ephesians chapter 1 as our passage today. We're actually going to look at nearly all of the book of Ephesians. And so um, a little later in the sermon, be ready to start flipping 
to the next page in your Bible app or the next page on paper um, because it's going to take doing that to be able to pull out um, the message that I, I believe is proclaimed here in verses 19 through 23 specifically. Um, but last week, Ben preached on gospel. He, brought, he, he used this terminology of the gospel of God, the gospel of the Messiah, and the gospel of salvation. And it, when I was trying to figure out where this sermon was going on community, I immediately got drawn into this passage because that exact terminology is used here in our passage today, the gospel of salvation. And I feel like that it bridges us very clearly into the, the progression that we see in Scripture of the gospel, community, and mission. And that is walked out right here in chapter 1 of Ephesians. It, it exemplifies the reason why we preach this series. So, um, as I reflected on Ben's sermon last week, yes, some of us reflect on your sermons throughout the week, sir. Um, there was this overarching theme of recognizing that the gospel is the good news of God, primarily. We see that portrayed as the gospel of the Messiah, specifically of Jesus Christ, and we're familiar with that. Um, and then all of the other ways that the gospel is mentioned, number three in that is the gospel of our salvation. And so uh, I want us to, to talk a bit more about that salvation this morning and how that draws us into community according to Ephesians, the, the, the book of Ephesians and specifically chapter 1. Um, in doing so, I think that I'm going to have to correct some previously held beliefs, some misconceptions of what your salvation is and what the term the gospel of salvation means. Because we have, actually, before I get into that, some of you guys like an outline, so I'm going to kind of stop for a moment and just kind of give that to you. So we're going to talk about um, how we're going to alleviate this misconception of what the gospel of God, Jesus, the salvation is. And then I'm going to circle into a point, too, that is going to be on God's expected response to this gospel. And under that, we're going to talk about walking in unity, in love, and in the Holy Spirit. So you'll see those come out. But um, the misconception. We have been taught that Jesus died to save you. You've heard that growing up in church. You've heard that preached here. And the, the problem is that we get hung up on what it means to have an individual salvation. We get caught on what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus himself. Now, that terminology to have a personal relationship with Jesus, you're not going to find those words anywhere in the New Testament. Now, the concept is clearly there throughout the Bible. From, from creation and God wanting relationship with Adam and Eve forward, we see the concept of God wanting a relationship with man and woman as individuals. But the problem here is that we, we begin to wrap our mind around this individual calling and this personal calling to salvation, 
personal calling to Jesus and it becomes individualistic. And so by a personal relationship with Jesus, you mean an individualistic relationship with Jesus? That, that terminology certainly, nor is the concept of that anywhere in the New Testament. And I want to push that even just a little bit further. Our relationship with Jesus is not private. It's communal. See, salvation is rooted in God's power and aims at reconciliation that is not just between an individual and God, but between groups of people. We see that clearly in the book of Ephesians. I'm going to point that out today. But throughout the letters to the churches, it talks about giving access to God, not individualistically, or at least just individualistically, but certainly communally. So Ephesians is a loved book. Many of us turn to Ephesians. We go there for assurance um, because we hear Paul proclaim things like that we are God's own possession. He has freely bestowed upon us his grace and his glorious son, that he has chosen us, that he has adopted us, and that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit that we just read, this down payment for our inheritance but we misperceive what that inheritance is. We turn the gospel towards our individual salvation. And we listen to a scripture reading like this morning, and we miss the last line of what we read, what it means to have the fullness of the inheritance. We we look at it and we completely miss that that is the church. So, starting in verse 19, um, read with me again what, what we just read a moment ago. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's pretty wordy when it comes out in English. So I, I think that we need to ask the question, what does it mean that he put all things under his feet and he gave him as head over all things of the church, which is the fullness of the body, him who fills all in all? We need to ask that question. We need to, to begin to understand, do we get what that means? The fullness of God described in these verses is not on an individual heart. It's in the church. It's not you in your quiet time. It's not you having hiked to the top of some mountain and having some mountaintop experience. For me, it's not sitting in the woods hunting. It's not, it's not on some beach 
with the revelation of God's creation lapping at the shore. It's in the church. So, the description of how God brings new life in Christ by grace, as described in chapter 1, with its result of reconciliation, is the illustration of God's power. We see that in verses 19 through 21. Beautiful, beautiful language of how God has demonstrated his power. We love this part of the gospel. We love it. We know. As members, we did a membership interview this morning, and we talk about this. Every one of you as members of this church have explained the gospel from creation to revelation, that that Jesus came, he lived a life that we as sinful creation couldn't live, that he died a horrific sacrificial death for us, that we are reconciled to him, that we that his power is demonstrated in his resurrection. Like we get that part of the gospel. We see it. We, we've spent the last year talking about how that applies to the kingdom. And we see that here in this verse, or in these verses. The fact that his name is established now and in the kingdom to come. The kingdom is now and coming. Hopefully, church, we begin to get a picture of what that means. But what, what does that look like, brothers and sisters, right now? When it says the fullness that is in the church right now, what does that look like for us? What is the passage pointing to today? And um, I believe Paul tells us um, this in verse 22 and 23 when he says that he put the fullness in the church. This is where we are to turn in the gospel of salvation. So I believe that when Paul says that, he says that we, when we get saved, when we come to salvation, that it's not just about you, but it's about the fact that you've been saved into a community of faith, not just from your private sins, but into a community of faith. Ben mentioned last week that we can, we can give a concise explanation of the gospel, but sometimes we need to clarify and dig deep into the truth of what the gospel is. And one of those truths is the fact that you are saved into a community. All right. Now, I know that some of you in the room right now have already begun to check out. Like, this is way out of your wheelhouse. This is different than what you have thought when you come to the the gospel. You, you come to the scripture and you've seen how this is about you and your salvation with God, your restoration to God. And so I want you guys to stick with me as we kind of breeze through the rest of Ephesians and look at how Paul takes this thesis statement that he just made and he he parses it out and he explains why this is. So this is the part where you're going to need to do some flipping. All right? So immediately, I thought I brought my water up here. Nope. Okay. Um, so uh, thanks, brother. My tongue is, I got one. Um, so immediately after verse 23 into chapter 2, we're gonna, I'm just going to kind of 
say a verse, and then point out where Paul supports this statement. So in verse, uh, he, he kind of follows this um, the same pattern that he did in chapter 1. He talks about the, the individual calling um, in the first part of chapter, and then he emphasizes it in verses 22 and 23. He does the same thing in chapter 2. So the first, like, 10 verses, he immediately transitions back to this indi- individual calling in into this corporate um, salvation. But uh, he does this by emphasizing the difference between how the Jews were called and the Gentiles were called. Uh, and then in chapter, or in verse 13, verse 15, he starts using language like this. He, he says, he did this to create one new man. He saved Jews. He saved Gentiles. He saved the people sitting on this side of the room and on that side of the room and in our congregation and every other church meeting this morning around the world. He did that for one corporate man. Then in verse 16, he reconciled them both in one body to God through the cross by which hostility has been killed. There's a hostility between Jew and Gentile that we don't get culturally. But they did in this letter. The differences between Jew and Gentile within the church at Ephesus and the surrounding community to which this letter went, they got that. And Paul is pointing it out right now. There is now one man, there was one cross that saved both of you, and now there is one body to which you've been reconciled. Verse 19, you're no longer foreigners and non-citizens, but you are now fellow citizens members of God's household. So, so far in the first 15, 16 verses of this chapter, Paul has already used four different ways to tell these people how they have been saved into one unit. Verse 21 and 22 of the same chapter. In him, the whole building, number five, being joined together, grows into a holy temple. Number six, in the Lord, we are using, we are also being built together into the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Here in one chapter, he uses seven ways to describe the fact that they are now one unit in their salvation. If you flip over to chapter 3, Paul begins to highlight his joy in the role of dispensing this mystery that is the church. He uses 16 verses to talk about how God called him specifically for this purpose. To proclaim that we are now saved into the church. And in verse, I'm going to start in verse 17 and read a few verses here. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, so that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think or according to his power to work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Remaining three chapters are instruction of how we are to walk in that. How we can consistently walk in what Paul calls our calling to be unified in a corporate body. 
So now the question is, do we get that? Do we believe it? Are you called not just into a reconciliation to God, but a reconciliation into man? I got a quiet. Because he's circled back here in verse three and used the same exact language that he did from verse or from chapter one. He says, "The fullness of God is not in your individual heart." Do you guys see it right there? It resides in the local body. So, church. This is really, really good news. Because you don't have to walk the struggle that it is to believe the gospel by yourself. This is a gift of God, a gift that is so high that he calls it the fullness that is in Christ. But I also know that to some in this room and watching, that that doesn't sound like good news at all. Um, And I want to address some reasons why um, that's not good news. You know, we're called into the fullness of God. Um, We're called into the church. This messy gathering of broken people, sinful, hurtful, high-maintenance people. And that part in itself is hard. But I think that there are um, two reasons that make it even more difficult than just the fact that we're sinful, broken people. And one of those is that we have formulated this intuitive, maybe somewhat vague um, idea of what it means to be corporate, to be real and honest with one another, what it looks like to be genuine with one another. We've drawn this idea from cultural influences, both within the church and outside the church. And we need to be careful of that. Because if we, we, we set this idea, we set this standard and expectation in our mind of what community should look like, what the interaction of the church should be, what my friendships and relationships within the church should be. And we need to be careful. We, we should subject that idea, that expectation of what community should be to biblical scrutiny. Otherwise, we develop very, very flawed assumptions and expectations of what it's supposed to look like. 
what that should look like when we come to our relationships within the church, what it looks like in missional family and living out mission together. Because what happens is when we have this assumed um, this, this assumed idea or expectation of what community should look like, and then what happens and the church doesn't meet it, then it, it falls apart. We grow frustrated. We become delusioned. Why is this not meeting the expectation that was in my head? We don't, we don't subject that idea of what community is to biblical scrutiny. Then one of two things are probably going to happen when we don't meet that expectation within the church. You're going to grow bitter and cause problems. Or you're going to get hurt and you're going to run. You're going to go look somewhere else for some place that meets your expectation. So that's number one. And we're going to come back to what a biblical expectation is in a moment. So that's number one, this self-construed idea of what community is. And then the second one, probably why I said I wasn't ready, is because I've been debating um, whether or not to bring this point up at all today, but here we go. Um, and the reason that I, well, I'll, I'll come back to the reason why I struggle with this in a moment. Um, the second point is that we don't buy into the truth that the blood-bought church of Christ is the new and superior family. Most of us would rank our relationships our priority to relationships, something like this. God, my family, God's family, the church, and then other people. Okay, That sounds pretty good. In fact, the reason I was hesitant to say this is because when I first started working, some of you don't know this, but I worked in collegiate ministry for a while, and one of my mentors, when I first started that, said, I have watched... Household after household fall apart because people didn't set good priorities in relationship. Um, and they said, if you ever get married, make sure that your, your wife and your family are first over your ministry. And I think that that was a really, really good set of advice. And it follows this priority set. But that... I don't think that's what's being communicated in this passage today. I think that what's being communicated is that when we are called out of our sin and reconciled to God and his church, that our priorities should look something like this. God and his family, my family, my biological family, my immediate family, my extended family, and then others. Probably going to lose a lot of people right here. You're not called to an individual salvation. You're called to a corporate salvation. We have this saying in my house, when perspectives are out of order, I'm kind of getting off now, but when perspectives are out of order and we're trying to emphasize what's important, we, 
we say, what is eternal? That's the question we ask. Well, there are, there are three things that are eternal. God, his word, and the souls of his people, the church. Now, this is a whole other sermon to unpack what this means. Um, but for now, I want us to, to, to focus on the fact that, that, that Jesus himself prioritized relationships in a way that might shock you. He said, leave your mother and your father. Follow me. And we just read that the fullness of following him is the church. So we could look at Matthew 12, 46 through 50. We can look into Luke 14, 26. We can look at um, Matthew 15. We can look at 1 Timothy 5, 8. We can go to all those places and look at this type of priority. Now, very clear, because we've got lots of other passages we can turn to where God will never call you to neglect those relationships. But we should remember that the relationships we have now are temporary. It is temporary that you are a son or daughter to your parents. And it is temporary that you are a child of your parents. It is temporary that you are a husband or a wife. These things will pass away. God, his word, and his church are going to stand in the new kingdom forever. Okay, so I think those are two hindrances that keep us from experiencing this fullness. Our misconception, because we've not put what we think gospel community should be against scripture, and two, because we don't buy in to the degree at which God calls us to buy in. So what should a realistic expectation of gospel community be? If we look at the instructions that are given in chapters 4 through 6, um, we can probably deduce that it's not going to be easy. All right? Let me run through, I didn't put verses to these, but let me run through some of the instructions that Paul gives to the church at Ephesus in regards to how they're going to live out this unity. He begins in chapter 4 with this plea to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that is unity. That's the terminology he uses. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling that is unity. And then he begins to say things like this. Um as he talks about what it means to love one another and love one another in unity. He says, forbear one another. Turn from your old deceitful desires. Focus on the renewing of your minds. Lay aside falsehoods. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil opportunity. Don't steal. Learn how to share. How to treat one another as brothers and sisters. How to treat one another as husbands and wives. And all of that, the overarching theme is that it be done in unity and love. That's chapter 4 alone. But 
Um, and, then, and then to top all of that off, if you flip to chapter 6, he talks about the fact that not only are we going to fight to live in unity with one another, but there's also this battle that's going on of flesh and blood, of spiritual powers, of darkness against spiritual forces. God had no qualms with having Paul point out to the church that it was not going to be easy to live in the fullness that is the church. But he gave a very clear expectation that we're to do it. That we take up his armor, as he says, in chapter 6, to make sure that it's accomplished. So let me, we're going to wrap up here by talking about how God expects us to live out that calling. And I've already kind of hit on this and we've read about it, but we are to walk in unity. Church, we are to be sitting here right now thinking about what that means for us individually and corporately to walk in unity. Therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Church, we are to walk in unity. And it's not going to be easy. But we are called to unity. God expects us to make every effort towards unity. Number two, we're to do this in love. So that Christ may dwell, uh, chapter 317. Um, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. God expects us to see and know the love of Christ. And then he expects us to exhibit it to the church. We don't have time to unpack all of those commands all of the ways in which Paul specifically gave instruction, this is how you can live in love, but it boils down to these two things. We're expected to see the love of Christ exhibited to us in the cross and then recognize that that was done so that he could call the church, so that the church could be given to him as his reward for the work that he did on the cross. I want to end with one final word of encouragement. We're commanded to live in love and unity, but God does not leave us to attempt this on our own, nor has he merely given us instructions of how to do so. He's given us two things in which to make that happen. One is the church itself, and two is the working of the Holy Spirit. 
And the Holy Spirit in our passage today is described as the down payment that ties us to the promise of the gospel of salvation. He is the seal. He's described in chapter 1 as the stamp that authenticates us as children of God. And there comes with this spirit a promise of hope in deliverance. And not only the hope and the calling that the spirit gives us, but the fact that he has given us a multitude of gifts described in those last three chapters of Ephesians in order to accomplish this. God not only calls us out of our sin into salvation, salvation within the church, but he gives us his power in the Holy Spirit to walk this way. Church, when it is hard to love your brother and sister, when it is hard to seek reconciliation and unity within the church, you don't have to do it on your own. You have brothers and sisters to love you into that, to counsel you into that, to point you to the instruction given in God's word to help us know how to do it. But above all of that, God himself empowers you to live in love and unity. It's his promise. That's what we are called to. Let me pray for us.